Publishing, The Going Postal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostalpublishing.com or email him at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Welcome to Incarceration, Episode 12. Hello, everybody. It is Christopher Chapman for the Going Postal Cast. This is Incarceration, Episode 12. Here we are just a week before Christmas. I hope all of you have gotten your Christmas presents together. You've bought your loved ones everything that you need to get them. And you're all ready to just sit back and watch the idiots run in and out of the Walmarts and the Targets and the Toys R Uses And just get the last minute gifts. And find out that there's just not enough of their prized possession or prized gifts that they want to get. Oh, doesn't it sound like fun? Sure, it does. Let's let's all go out together and just make fun of those who are less fortunate than us. No, 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 no. Okay, we don't actually want to do that. We're I'm just having a little fun here. I hope all of you have gotten your stuff together, all your stuff for Christmas. Your hams are purchased and ready to be baked and all that good stuff. I've been pretty fortunate. I've been buying everything for the last two months now and with a week to go, I'm pretty much done. I have gotten everything that needs to be taken care of for my four kids actually taken care of. They have all their toys. They're ready to be put under the tree. All I need to do now is go pick up some food because I'm going to be making some Christmas dinner. Well, it's going to be lunch, but I'm going to be making Christmas lunch. And then at some point, then I got to get in the car and take the kids to their moms, which isn't the best thing to be doing on Christmas, and I know the kids don't want to travel on Christmas, but, you know, in situations like this, we just do the best we can and hope that everything goes, well, as good as they can. So I guess I should get into a few updates. Well, there's not a whole lot to talk about because I've been kind of taking it easy this month. I haven't been uh, working on a lot of projects, just basically writing and uh, slowly getting the preparation going for Daddy's Little Girl. I am still writing the fantasy story. Still no name for it, but as of tonight, I am over 80,000 words into it. It is going pretty good. I'm getting to some very interesting parts to the story. I'm kind of, there was a few spots where I kind of didn't even know that these parts were going to come up. And that's the best part of writing is when you don't even know, oh, wow, what is happening here? I didn't even think of that. Like last night, I kind of had a really busy day and kind of stayed up a little later than I wanted to. And I had to get my writing done for the day. I have a set, thanks to my program Scrivener, I ha- have it set up. This is what I need to get done in the day to get to my word goal. And so it said I had to get to this many words. And I'm just super tired and I'm just writing. And this is a large section that's probably going to have to be completely edited and gutted and just manipulated into something that's actually readable when I go through it again. But at the same time, because I'm so tired, it 
I actually started writing and then the idea came where okay now this is a real interesting twist and suddenly I had something to work with today so today I went with the twist that I kind of drunk or not drunk but tired you know that tired feeling where your brain just doesn't function and you feel drunk and that was kind of what was going on yesterday and then today is just like I just ran with it and that was kind of awesome I'm hoping to have this book done by the month's end the only day that I probably will not be writing at all on is Christmas Day other than that day I'm planning on writing as much as I can between now and then I want to get past my goal of my word goal and I think that the story is going to hit about 110,000 words when it's all said and done, which is about the sweet spot for me because, as I mentioned last week, I kind of add on when I go through and do the second and third and fourth and fifth drafts, so I'm just weird like that. So with it being a week before Christmas, I want to do a little bit of shameless self-promoting here a little bit early. With one week to go, why not give your family, your friends, people who read something that they all can enjoy. Incarceration. Alright, you're going to be listening to two more chapters today, and you're probably enjoying it, but, but why not, if, you're, if your loved ones, if they're horror readers, or even if they're just readers in general that like stories with a little bit of creepiness to them, with a little bit of gore every now and then, why not talk to them about incarceration or just give them a copy of incarceration in ebook form ebook only three dollars and 99 cents that is a steal literally you're stealing from me put it back now now no okay three dollars and 99 cents and you can get your your friends or family incarceration and you can enjoy or they can enjoy the book as much as you are listening to it all right Enough of the shameless self-promotion right now. I'll get to do a little bit more of that on the flip side of what's coming up next, and that is two more chapters of incarceration. Imagine that. Enjoy. Chapter 22. The three months following the murders of the Normans, as well as Mary and Gary Rangel, were some of the busiest in Chief of Police Randy Thompson's life. Niagara was in a state of shock now that one of its own was facing trial for five counts of murder. It was as if the town had a hard time accepting the fact that someone from a small town could be twisted enough to kill his own parents. They were slowly coming to grips with it. Secretly, Randy kept his eyes and ears out for any sign of the man that had assisted Jason in the murders. There hadn't been any sign since the two officers disappeared from the morgue. Their bodies, as well as the body of Jim Hendricks, still hadn't been discovered despite extensive searches throughout the area and surrounding towns. The accomplice simply vanished and took everything with him. For all he knew, the accomplice could be lying in a ditch somewhere, dying or already dead. It didn't matter to him as long as he wasn't terrorizing his town and getting in the way of the trial. The trial was already upon them. The jury had already been selected and things were ready to get rolling. Randy knew that one of the great things about court-appointed lawyers was that they didn't always try too hard to postpone the trial. The county had wanted this trial to happen as quickly as possible, and it appeared that they were going to get their wish. Unless something happened in the next 12 hours, something completely extraordinary, the trial would go on as planned. He laid on his sofa, staring at the television. He knew he should head up to bed, 
but knew that he wouldn't be able to sleep. There was so much on his mind that he couldn't even see what Tim Allen was doing in the new episode of Home Improvement. Samantha had recorded it for him. She was so good to him. Normally he was unable to take his eyes away from the screen. Now he couldn't tell what the last joke meant. His unrest was due to the fact that things hadn't all gone according to plan. The scissors, the goddamn scissors, were supposed to match the murders. Both victims' blood was all over the scissors, but that wasn't enough for Randy. The icing on the cake should have been the forensic expert coming to him and saying that the weapon had definitely been used to commit the murders. That hadn't happened. What had happened was Ramon Sag, the head of the forensics lab in Green Bay, contacted him with startling news. The cuts don't match the scissors, Ramon had said just a week ago. First of all, the scissors that you provided are nowhere near sharp enough to cut through skin like that. Nor would a killer have had the time to do a job like this. These cuts were quick, slicing through the skin in a matter of seconds. Are you sure? Randy asked, hoping against hope that there may have been some doubt there. I'm sure, Ramon responded. I only wish I knew what the murder weapon was. If I didn't know any better, I'd have to say that Teeth made these. The problem with that theory is that Teeth would have to be at least three inches long to make incisions like this. There aren't many animals around that could do that, and definitely not any people. Somebody made a weapon that you haven't found yet. He paused. If I were you, I'd be spending all of your time looking for that murder weapon so that an innocent man doesn't wind up in prison. Randy was shocked by what he heard. The boy was guilty, no matter what any of these so-called experts thought. He had the blood on the scissors and had found Jason with a few quarts of the stuff all over him. He had the boy. Why was this guy trying to ruin such a perfect thing? A light tapping at the front door brought him out of his thoughts. He looked up, staring at the door. He glanced at the clock and saw that it was nearly eleven. Who in the hell could be here at this time? He asked no one in particular as he got up and walked to the door. He stopped at the door and looked through the peephole. He saw only darkness. Realizing that he'd forgotten about the outside light, he reached over and flipped the light switch. He looked through the peephole again, but found the results to be no better. Nobody was out there. He unlocked the door and opened it. He stepped outside and looked around, seeing nobody. Hello, he asked, trying to be as quiet as possible. He didn't want to wake his wife up. Is anybody there? He received no answer, nor did he see the slightest bit of movement. He continued looking around, feeling as if he were being watched. He couldn't see anything out of the ordinary, so he thought that his mind must have been playing tricks on him. All of the stress of the murders and the upcoming trial had done a number on him. Half of the time he had no idea what was happening around him. He turned to go back inside when his foot brushed against something. He looked down, examining the item that he touched. It was a newspaper. He again looked around, but still saw nobody. He bent down, grabbed the paper, then returned to an upright position without ever taking his eyes off the view in front of him. When somebody knocks on your door just before 11, leaves a newspaper, then disappears into the night from which he came, Randy had every right to be suspicious. Because Randy wasn't wearing his reading glasses, he lifted the newspaper close to his face. He scanned the top of the paper. It was an edition of the Daily Mining Gazette. He glanced further, reading that it had been printed in Houghton, Michigan. He couldn't remember exactly where that was, but knew that it was a few hours north. As odd as a newspaper from Houghton on his doorstep was, the headline just below the newspaper's name grabbed his attention. 
His heart thumped in terror. Student found near Michigan Tech. He's been in Houghton, Randy thought, looking again out into the darkness. Why does he want me to see this? He wondered if this was some sort of game. Was somebody on to him? Did somebody know that he was trying to keep the accomplice a secret? He suspected that somebody was on to him. That was the only thing that made any sense. He took one last look out into the darkness before sliding back into the house. He closed the door behind him and locked it. He moved to where he'd been sitting just moments before and sat, lifting the newspaper in front of him. It read, The Houghton County Sheriff's Department are stumped after finding a body on College Avenue, just three blocks from Michigan Tech University. Carl Edipa, who was walking his dog shortly before dawn this morning, found the body. He immediately called the Houghton County Sheriff's Department, who were on the scene in minutes. It was unlike anything I've ever seen, said Chief of Police George McLean. The body was found missing all of its blood, with a large amount of its throat missing. It appeared as if it had been cut out with a sharp object. Some have already associated this murder to a series of murders that occurred in Niagara, Wisconsin just a few months back, in which two families were killed in a similar manner. A suspect has been taken into custody. Jason Rangel, the 17-year-old son of one of the deceased families, has been charged with five counts of murder and is currently being held in the Marinette County Jail, where he is awaiting his trial. I don't think that these cases are related in any way, continued Chief McLean. I've already spoken to officers that had worked those crime scenes, and there were many similarities, as well as many differences. He did not go into specifics as to what those were, citing that it was still an ongoing investigation. I believe that we are dealing with a copycat killer who is mimicking the previous murders, McLean added before refusing to answer any further questions. Calls to the Marinette County Sheriff's Department for comment haven't been returned. One officer working on the Niagara Police Force refused to speak, simply saying, no comment. We will continue to update this story as new information is made available, and the name of the victim has been released. If you have any information regarding this case, please call the Houghton County Sheriff's Department or the Houghton Police Department. Randy put down the newspaper, feeling sick to his stomach. This was no copycat killer. He knew it as well as he knew his own name. He didn't need to be a rocket scientist to understand the links between the two cases, especially when it came to how the murders had been committed. While the press had been told that the throats had been cut out, no possible murder weapon had been given. Nor would they be given any information until after the start of the trial. If someone had copied this murder, it would soon be found out. With no knowledge of the weapon, it would be easy to distinguish differences in the wounds. Why hadn't the Houghton County Sheriff's Department contacted him about the case? He was the man responsible for breaking this case wide open and putting Jason Rangel behind bars. If there was a question concerning this case, they should have contacted him. That still left the question. Who left the newspaper at his front door? He picked at his brain for possibilities, but kept coming up blank. He didn't know of anyone who was crazy enough to put a newspaper anywhere near the chief's front door. Although he had no proof... He truly believed that somebody was trying to tell him something, possibly even that they knew that he was withholding information that could possibly lead to the arrest of the accomplice. He couldn't let this get to him. He was less than 24 hours away from the start of the trial. All he had to do was go through with the plan, and this would go away forever. Even if the scissors hadn't been used to cut out the throats of the victims, it was going to be difficult to prove otherwise with the only known photos of the victims locked up safely. It would take a miracle for the defense attorney to figure it out. 
The blood being on the scissors was more than enough. It was clear that Jason had used the scissors to kill his parents. Everything else was irrelevant. The accomplice was gone, and it appeared that he wasn't coming back. That was as good as it was going to get for him. He crumpled up the newspaper and put it into the fireplace. He reached into his pocket and produced a pack of matches. He took a match and lit it. The match burned the light between two of his fingers. He moved the match slowly into the fireplace, touching it to the edge of the newspaper. The newspaper charred, then burst into flames. The fire spread, consuming the entire newspaper in less than four seconds. The paper burned hot, turning into blackened ash before his eyes. That's done, he said to himself. He walked towards the steps. He stopped, turned off the living room lights, then went up the stairs. He went to bed that night feeling no remorse for what he was about to do. He went to bed knowing that there was more to this story than he would ever understand. He was doing exactly what he had to for his family, his job, and his city. Chapter 23 The television was calling it the case of the century. This was the biggest case in Wisconsin since Jeffrey Dahmer. Media vans from all over the state, as well as Michigan, Minnesota, and CNN were visible surrounding the courthouse as the unmarked van carrying Jason Rangel approached. Jason stared out of the tinted van, studying the crowd of onlookers. He couldn't believe all of the attention this case was getting. It was as if everybody in Marinette, plus half of Wisconsin, was here to see what was going to happen. I hope you rot, said a male voice from within the crowd, barely audible through the van's windows. The words caused him to wince. Fry, you little bastard, a woman said. Frying was an interesting statement, considering that there were a group of citizens that had recently gone public about trying to bring back the death penalty in Wisconsin. It was the same group that had tried during Dahmer's case. They failed then, and as of his trip into court, had failed now as well. He supposed that he was lucky that something like this happened in Wisconsin. If he'd lived in another state, he might not have been so lucky. He knew what stood before him, and was aware of his chances. Things looked bad. He was thankful that he didn't have one more thing to fear. Signs littered the crowd. Several people carried signs with messages that were eerily similar to the opinions they voiced. He saw, Jason Rangel equal life sentence. Nobody has the right to murder. Parent killer. Niagara's most wanted. As well as many others. The van did not go to the front entrance. Instead, they went around the side of the building, where there were several guards waiting for the van. There was a small entrance that they intended getting in through unnoticed. The problem was that some had already stumbled upon the secret entrance. The van stopped 15 feet from the entrance. As the side door opened, an officer grabbed hold of Jason and forcibly moved him towards the entrance. Jason winced as something hit him in the side of the head. He turned to the right and saw that several crowd members had followed them into the alley and were now throwing debris at him. He looked down and saw that it was a small chunk of concrete that had struck him. He imagined that if he were able to touch the side of his head with his hand, it would return with blood on his fingers. Get back, shouted one of the guards as Jason moved inside the building. He was escorted up two flights of stairs to the circuit court. He entered the courtroom through a side door before anybody else had been allowed inside. He took a seat on the left side of the room and was released from his handcuffs. He rubbed his wrists and sat back in his chair, taking a deep breath. The moment he'd feared since the day he'd been arrested had arrived. 
The trial started 15 minutes later. Jason spent a lot of time scanning the crowd. He'd expected Allison to be there, but found that she was nowhere to be seen. Neither was Dave. Where were they? He'd find out soon enough. The day's first order of business caught Jason completely off guard. The prosecution had decided to drop the charges against him in the Norman slayings. We feel that the evidence we've compiled in the murder of his parents is more than sufficient, Michael Dorr, Marinette County's prosecuting attorney, said to Judge Donnelly at the start of the trial. Jason's attorney, Barry Connors of the practice Connors and Hill, leaned over and whispered, They don't have enough evidence to tie you to those murders. With no bodies, they'd have a hard time convincing a jury that you were responsible for their deaths, as well as your parents. Can we use this? Jason asked, feeling the first glimpse of hope in months. Don't know, Barry said. It all depends on the jury. They might see it as a moment of weakness, but, then again, they might see it as an act of compassion from the prosecution. I'll have to see how this plays out. Rest assured, however, I'll try to use this to my advantage. Jason hoped that was true. Motion aside, the prosecution presented their case in relentless fashion. Michael Dork called witness after witness, asking them questions about Jason's temper and relationship with his parents. Each witness said exactly what the prosecution had been hoping for, creating a tale where Jason had absolutely no control of his anger and hated his parents to no end. To Jason's lawyer's credit, Barry did try fighting back. Barry tried to get the witnesses to admit that they were exaggerating or flat-out lying. He asked them questions that made them pause. Unfortunately, each one stuck to their stories. I'd like to call my next witness, Michael Dorr said to the judge. The prosecution calls David Grimes to the stand. Jason spun around as the doors opened and Dave Grimes walked through. Jason sat in horror as his best friend walked towards the witness stand, took his oath, and sat where he'd been instructed to sit. At no point did he make eye contact with Jason. Dave, just like everybody else, told the jury that he had a temper that couldn't be controlled. There were many occasions where I was afraid of what he might do, Dave told the jury. When he snapped, we all just stood back until we knew he'd calmed enough to be talked to. Is that what happened on the day in question? Michael asked. Is that what happened when he attacked Nathan Paulson? Dave looked at Michael for a few seconds. A small frown spread across his lips as he spoke. Jason attacked him because he did something to Allison Rouse, Dave said. That's it? Michael asked. Why isn't he asking about what Nathan did? Jason asked himself. He's ignoring what Nathan did to her. And why is Dave playing along? Why is he helping them? He wanted to scream out, but that wouldn't help anything. If he were going to yell out, he'd have to pick a better spot. That's it, Dave said. He turned to Nathan and started swinging. I've seen him angry before, but never like what he was like that day. He was like a totally different person. I couldn't go near him because I was afraid. You're three inches taller than me and outweigh me by 60 pounds, he screamed in his mind. He wanted to shout it out. Who would care if the judge would hold him in contempt? How could anybody believe that Dave could be afraid of him? They'd fought once before, back in fourth grade. That fight hadn't lasted long. Dave had beaten him senseless. Jason noticed that there was something strange in the way Dave looked at Michael Dorr. There was something in his face that looked familiar. Was it resentment? Was it anger? Jason couldn't quite put his finger on it, but there was something definitely going on there that he didn't understand.
After Michael was finished, Barry tried to get Dave to change his story, bringing up things from the past. Isn't it true that you and Jason Wrangle are best friends? Barry asked. That's true, Dave answered, glancing at Jason for a very brief moment. There was another look in there, possibly sorrow. Had Jason actually seen that? We've been best friends for as long as I've known him. Then why are you so afraid of him? Barry asked as he stood in front of the jury members. It seems to me that if he's your best friend, then there would be no reason to be afraid of him. I know that I've never been afraid of mine. Do you care to explain? Dave didn't answer him for a long time. He stood motionless, refusing to look at Barry. Mr. Grimes, may I remind you that you're under oath? Please answer the question, Judge Donnelly commanded. It's complicated, Dave said, finally looking towards Barry. You don't know what it's like to be friends with him. There's a lot more to it than you understand. There are a lot of things that none of you could possibly understand. Barry seemed to consider this for a moment and then said, I have no further questions, Your Honor. Dave got off the stand, walking past Jason without looking his way. Jason stared at Dave, trying to figure out what was happening. Something glistened in the light, on the right side of Dave's face, just below his eye. Was that a tear? It was hard to tell. One second he saw it, the next he couldn't. Dave disappeared from the courtroom, walking out the door. He was certain that he'd never seen Dave cry before. As the door stood open for a few seconds, Jason saw something that made his stomach go sour. Dave was talking with Nathan Paulson. Dave said something to Nathan, who was nodding, then turned and walked away. Jason didn't need to hear what Michael Dorr was going to say to know that Nathan Paulson was next. Nathan entered the courtroom, walking with a certain amount of cockiness that reminded Jason of how much he loathed him. He could feel that old memory of hate creep over him. Nathan's eyes met his as a smile spread across his face, the one that Nathan gave when he had you dead to rights. Jason now knew that something was up, and that Nathan might be behind it, or was a major player in it. He took the stand, sitting in the chair, and unlike Dave, he never took his eyes off Jason. Mr. Paulson, Michael said, would you mind telling me what happened on the day that the defendant allegedly killed his parents? I'm sure the court would like to know exactly what he did to you. I was walking to school, minding my own business, when he started talking about what happened to the Normans, Nathan said. His voice was different. He sounded younger, like a little child who was trying to portray their innocence after they'd done something wrong. I didn't even want to talk about it, but he kept bringing it up. He wanted to know what I saw or heard. I told him that I didn't know anything, but he kept talking. What about when you got to school? Michael asked. More of the same, Nathan said. He was telling people in our geometry class about the Normans. I thought he might have been mocking their deaths with the way he seemed to be gloating. I tried to get involved, but his girlfriend stopped me. Who would that be? Allison Rouse, he said. Those two are hot for each other, I tell you. She protected him and tried to put her hands on me for standing up to him. She tried attacking me. I turned to fight him when I accidentally struck Allison. He became enraged, pounding on me with everything he had while I tried to make sure that Allison was okay. He didn't care. He pounded on me while I was defenseless until I couldn't move. 
You were taken to the hospital? Yes, I was, Nathan confirmed. I had major injuries that he gave me. He extended a finger towards Jason. I had to spend two nights in the hospital because of the concussion and broken nose that he gave me. I didn't know where I was for hours. Barry tapped Jason on the shoulder and gave him a thumbs up. What was that all about? Had Barry figured something out? I will forever be afraid of Jason Rangel after what he did to me, Nathan said. I was told by my doctor that I might not be able to play football anymore after the concussion I suffered. They say that I'm at an elevated risk of receiving another one, possibly more serious. Michael returned to his seat and grabbed several photographs from the table. I'd again like to refer to Exhibit D, Michael said, then turned to the jury. These are the photographs that the police took of Jason Rangel's fist on the night he was arrested. These photographs show the knuckles of a man who's been in a fistfight, just as the specialist has already told this court. The other photo is of Nathan and how he looked following the fistfight. Jason bowed his head. Those damn photos were going to be the end of him. Did Jason do this to you? Michael asked, showing the picture of Nathan to the jury. Yes, Nathan replied, looking and sounding ashamed. No further questions, Michael said, already walking to his seat. Barry immediately stood and walked up front as Michael Dorr sat down. Mr. Paulson, Nathan, right? Barry asked. Nathan nodded. Nathan, you mentioned that you received a severe concussion at the hands of my client. That's right, Nathan said, taking his eyes off Jason for the first time. He looked at Barry with contempt. I didn't know where I was for a few hours. If that's true, Barry began. Then how are you able to remember what happened at the time of the alleged attack? I'm well aware of concussions and how they affect your brain. Objection, Your Honor, Michael Dorr shouted, getting to his feet. Mr. Connors is not a doctor. How could he possibly know about concussions? Before the judge could consider this, Barry spoke. Prior to law school, I went to med school, Barry said. While I may not have my Ph.D., I do have a very good knowledge of concussions and many other head wounds. Judge Donnelly seemed to consider this for several seconds before saying, I'll allow it. Please continue. Michael sat down, looking extremely upset. Where was I? Barry asked. Oh, yes. Doesn't it seem strange that you remember what happened to you, even when you don't remember where you were for several hours following the attack? It seems highly unlikely that you would remember the attack at all. You calling me a liar? Nathan asked, standing up. Please sit down, Judge Donnelly ordered. Nathan sat down, but didn't stop glaring at Barry. I'm not calling you a liar, Barry said. That's not up to me to decide. What I'm trying to do is give a proper portrayal of what you went through. If your injury is as severe as you're attempting to lead us to believe, then you have to admit that you might not remember the actual alleged attack as well as you'd have us believe. He paused. I'd like to remind you that you're under oath. Nathan didn't say anything for several seconds before speaking. I'll admit that there were many things that are a bit hazy, Nathan said through gritted teeth. No further questions, Barry said, then walked back to Jason with a smile on his face. Barry had done it. He'd created disbelief in Nathan's statement. Who would have thought that a court-appointed attorney could have gone to med school? 
The only problem was that Dave, as well as others, had already testified to the court a version of the incident that was a lot closer to what Nathan was saying than to what actually happened. Nathan walked away from the stand, keeping his eyes on Jason until he was past him. He disappeared through the exit and out of Jason's life. Good riddance. The prosecution rests, Your Honor, Michael Dorr said, interrupting Jason's hatred. Mr. Connors, you may call your first witness, Judge Donnelly said. Leaning over and whispering into Jason's ear, Barry said, Don't be mad at me. For what? Barry didn't answer him. Instead, he stood and said, The defense would like to call Allison Rouse to the stand. The fury inside Jason returned in a tidal wave. He glared at Barry, ready to tear his head off. Now he knew why he hadn't seen Allison yet. She'd been on the witness list and couldn't enter the courtroom until her testimony was finished. He'd hoped to keep her out of it. she told him during her visit that she would do whatever it took to keep him out of prison. He'd hoped that it wouldn't have to come to that. He'd hoped to keep her nose clean in all of this. What would happen if she testified on his behalf and he still wound up going to prison? She'd likely become an outcast in Niagara, perhaps being driven right out of town. He couldn't allow that. But what could he do about it? I don't want her testifying, Jason whispered to Barry, who wasn't paying any attention to him. He'd become focused on the door. Do you hear me? He turned around as the door swung open once more. Allison Rouse stepped inside the courtroom. He stared at her, his anger forgotten, as her beauty dulled all other emotion. He wanted to get up and run to her, but knew that he couldn't. The bailiff would take him away in cuffs before he could get within ten feet of her. He wanted to touch her, needed to hold her. She'd promised that they'd go on one date when this was over, if it ever was over. He wanted that more than anything. He'd dreamed of that moment for years and wondered what it would be like to kiss those luscious lips. She walked past, smiling at him as she did. There was something in that smile that was more wonderful than anything he'd ever experienced. All of the hurt and frustration from the last few months melted away in a single instant as he lost himself in her warm gaze. Allison took her oath, then sat behind the witness stand. As Nathan had done before, she watched him as she spoke. Barry wasn't a great lawyer, but he seemed to have somewhat of an idea of what he was doing. Bringing Allison on the stand was risky, but he chose all the right questions. What is your relationship with the accused? Barry asked. We're very good friends, she answered in a calm voice. Have you been friends all that long? A few months. Why such a short amount of time? I hadn't gotten to know him very well until recently. Why is that? Barry asked. School pressure, she answered, sighing. We come from two totally different social groups. With the unfortunate difference in social status, we really never got the chance to talk all that much. We saw each other, sure, but that's as far as it went. What changed? He saved me. Saved you? Saved you from what exactly? From Nathan Paulson, she said, causing a murmur to go through the crowd, as well as the jury. Nathan Paulson attacked me. Jason fought him after he hit me. She pointed at the side of her head. He stood up for me when nobody else in that class would. Nathan is a lot bigger than I am. As far as I'm concerned, I owe Jason some respect. So you're saying that Nathan Paulson was the instigator in that fight on the day in question? Yes, she said, 
smiling her warm smile to Barry, then to the jury. She was good at this. Nathan attacked me, and Jason fought him off. That's exactly how it happened. I see, Barry said. What about what led to the fight? Was something happening that led to the problem between yourself and Nathan? He was bragging about seeing Jesse Norman and his parents while they were being wheeled out of their houses on stretchers, she answered. He kept telling everybody about the blood he'd seen. So, you're saying that Nathan instigated the conversation about the Normans? Yes, Allison answered. No further questions, Your Honor, Barry said. Michael Dorr was quick to his feet. Ms. Rouse, would you say that Jason lost his temper that day? Michael asked. Yeah, I guess so. He was very upset, but he seemed... So, what you're saying is that Jason lost control of his temper during that fight? Michael asked, interrupting her. Well, yes, but it isn't like... And isn't it true that the two of you are actually more than friends? Jason saw that she was becoming visibly flustered with the way he kept cutting her off. For the first time since she'd entered the courtroom, her smile had diminished. We're friends, Allison told Michael. It's kind of hard to date someone that's wrongfully sitting behind bars. I'm not asking you for your opinion, Miss Rouse. I'm asking you about your relationship with the defendant. Now, isn't it true that there's more to your relationship with the accused than just a casual friendship? The subject has come up about a date, she said, continuing with her honesty. It's nothing more than talk at this point, at least until you realize that he didn't commit the crimes you think he did. Again, may I remind you that your opinion is not relevant in this case, Miss Rouse, Michael said, a little louder this time. He was angry. These are simple questions that require simple answers. Can you handle that? Yes, she said, staring at Michael. She was visibly angry as well. Good. Then I'll ask once again. Have you thought about dating him? Yes, but I don't understand how this question is. Miss Rouse, he interrupted once more. I'm trying to make this jury aware of your personal connection to the accused. We just want to make sure that your responses aren't fueled by your emotions for him. It's not that way at all, Allison said, her voice taking on her anger for the first time. I'm telling you the truth. I'm sure you are, Michael said with a bit of arrogance. And I suppose that the four or five witnesses that I provided, that all told the same story, are liars. I don't know what they said, but I'm telling you the truth. No further questions, Your Honor, Michael said, walking back to his seat. Are you going to fix this? Jason asked Barry, whispering so that they couldn't be overheard. Barry turned to look at him with a defeated look on his face and said, I'm sorry, kid, but I don't know how to fix this. He then spoke to the judge, much louder than before. I have no questions, Your Honor. Judge Donnelly told Allison she could leave. She walked past Jason and mouthed, I'm so sorry. He smiled at her, knowing that she did her best. The trial went by quickly, ending on the third day of testimony. It wasn't until the attorneys gave their closing arguments that things became interesting. The prosecution went first. Michael Dorr went over every minute detail of the last three days, repeating a shortened version of each witness's testimony against Jason. He continuously pointed out how each of their statements were eerily similar, then questioned Allison's motives for her statement. Jason listened to each and every word, fixated on the lies and deceit that Michael told. 
Then Michael talked about the bodies of his parents. This was when things really got interesting. I know how highly unusual it is to have a murder trial when there are no bodies, Michael said slowly, making sure that each word had an appropriate amount of emphasis. I'm well aware that the defense is going to spin you a tale about how you cannot convict somebody of murder when there are no murder victims to be seen. Let me assure you that there are murder victims. Mary and Gary Rangel, loving parents and proud members of their community, are dead because of their son, an out-of-control, angry teenager. You don't need the bodies to convict Jason. I've presented more than enough evidence over the past couple of days to ensure that you can find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Niagara's chief of police has testified that he saw the bodies. Just because we don't have the bodies here doesn't mean that the crime didn't happen. You're supposed to convict Jason beyond a reasonable doubt. Let me tell you what reasonable doubt is. What if Mary and Gary Rangel walked into this courtroom right now? Let's look at our watches for the next 10 seconds and see if they come in. The room became deathly quiet as most heads turned towards the door. Not Jason, though. He saw no point in looking for something that would never happen. His parents weren't going to be walking through that door. His mother and father were dead. Michael Dorr wasn't going to somehow bring his parents back from the dead and have them walk through those doors. It just wasn't going to happen. You see, they're not coming, Michael continued. We have the evidence. We have the blood. And we have the scissors. Let's not forget that those scissors, carried by the defendant, were found with blood from both his mother and father all over them. There's little more I can say. This case speaks for itself. Jason Rangel is guilty. I'm not going to waste your time, ladies and gentlemen, beating on a dead horse. He's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Here's your chance to put a cold-hearted killer behind bars for the rest of his miserable existence. Michael Dorr was more convincing than Jason would have liked. That little waiting stunt, as stupid as it may have seemed, was very well done. He obviously got through to the jurors with that trick. It was going to take a major performance from Barry Connors to get out of this unscathed. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. You can't send my client to prison based on the evidence that Michael Dorr has provided, Barry said to the jury. Everything he said to you is based on theory, not fact. There are no bodies because somebody other than my client took them. There is a conspiracy against my client that goes beyond normal guilt and innocence. This conspiracy is a witch hunt against my client. Yes, he has anger issues. And maybe this alleged confrontation with his parents did happen. That doesn't mean that he killed them. Jason bowed his head in shame. There was a reason why this man was a court-appointed attorney. He was adequate, but not good enough to get the job done. His closing statement wasn't convincing. Jason felt his last hopes flutter away. It was all over. The jury was sent away to deliberate. When they returned 45 minutes later, it wasn't difficult to know what their verdict would be. Have the members of the jury reached a verdict? Judge Donnelly asked the 12 members of the jury shortly after they returned from deliberating. Yes, we have, said the jury foreman. Please read the verdict, Judge Donnelly ordered, then turned to Jason. Would the defendant please rise? 
Jason stood, his heart feeling as if it were going to beat right out of his chest. This was it. It all came down to this. It was do-or-die time, and his life hung in the balance. The jury foreman took a deep breath before speaking. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty on all counts. The crowd behind Jason erupted into a chorus of cheers. Jason bowed his head, his worst nightmare becoming a reality. Bailiff, please remove the defendant from my courtroom, Judge Donnelly ordered. The bailiff approached with a set of handcuffs. Jason held out his arms, all fight gone from him. Everything seemed like a nightmare, too strange to be real. Unfortunately, it was real. He was living his nightmare. The bailiff slapped the cuffs on him, making sure they were snug. Jason grimaced, but hardly noticed. Jason Wrangle, the teenager who'd narrowly survived a fight with his parents' killer, was now a convicted felon. The bailiff led him to the door from which he'd entered each of the previous three days. Leaving the courtroom, he heard the cheers and thought about how much he would love to make them pay. If only they could understand the truth. Jason Rangel left the courtroom as a convicted murderer. Almost to the halfway point of the book. Chapter 24 actually marks the halfway point of the book. So next week's episode, the Christmas, Christmas, Christmas episode, is going to be the halfway point. I'm expecting this to go the full 24 episodes, and that should be about an average of two chapters per. There's going to be a show coming up pretty quick that's going to have three chapters in the same episode. So be on the lookout for that. So being halfway in, I have to start thinking of other things I can give you when we run out of incarceration stuff. So I'll be working on that very soon. Yay, I get to come up with more more stuff for you. All right, so it's time for some shameless self-promoting. You know the drill by now if you haven't started following me on Twitter. What is wrong with you? You should have done it already. Twitter.com slash GoingPostalPub. I don't get on Twitter as much as I used to, but I am going to get back on there. I am going to say very intelligent and crazy things. Crazy, I tell you. Facebook.com slash GoingPostalPublishing. I am also on YouTube, GoingPostalPub on there. Remember to click through the banner on GoingPostalPublishing.com. Go to Amazon, make your purchases. You help the show out when you do that. Send me an email, goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. I have been answering questions that you've been sending me. I didn't I didn't answer one this week, but I knew we were going to have a longer episode. I kind of wanted to get through a few things first, and I had to do the shameless self-promoting. I have to do that. I have to pay the bills. But I will definitely answer another question or two next week. So that's just going to wrap up this week's show a full 47 plus minutes into this. So, you know what? Have yourself a great week, and I will see you next week, and hopefully the world doesn't come to an end first. I know that this episode's coming out a whopping, what, four days or five days before the end of the world? I know. Hopefully we make it to next week so that way we can talk about Christmas and not from beyond the grave. That'd be weird. All right? You guys take care now. Bye-bye then. Listening to the Going Postal Cast. For up-
updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012.